Actually, we're going to be reading chapter 13. We'll we'll talk about chapters 11 through 13, but uh, the the portion that we'll read is is chapter 13. The people of Israel are in a great position spiritually because in chapters 7 through 10 they have heard from God. Remember, they asked Ezra to read to them from the Scripture, but they are not those who simply look into the mirror of God's Word and see the imperfections that they have and then walk away. Instead, they are doers of the Word as well. They listen to God's Word and they do God's Word. And this is to be commended. They have responded, remember, with contrition and confession and genuine change. They, they, one of the things that they noticed is that they hadn't been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and so they prepared to do that and they did it. They also saw that they had not separated from foreigners like they should have in chapter 10, verse 30. They also saw that they had not observed the Sabbath as a holy day like they should in chapter 10, verse 31. And then the next part of that chapter shows us that they had uh, recognized that they had stopped giving to the needs of the temple. The temple tax had, had not been paid and the supply of the wood that was necessary and the consecration of the firstborn. And so as a result the priests and the Levites had to leave the city to find work elsewhere in order to sustain their lives and the lives of their family. And, and yet, in the reading of God's Word, it, it, it showed them where they were failing. And it brought about real change. And that real change was expressed in chapter 10 in this solemn commitment to God and to one another they actually make an agreement that they sign or in their day they actually sealed it with some kind of a seal. Each of the leaders of the people sealed this document saying, yes, we agree to it. And the rest of the people in in the nation of Israel agreed to it as well. And so I say Israel is in a good position spiritually because they are earnest about the Word of God. They recognize the sins of their fathers and the consequences that have come as a result. They recognize their own sins and are willing to turn from those sins as soon as God makes them known to them. And, you know, chapter 10 would be a great place to end this book because Israel is on a high spiritually and are seemingly far away from turning their backs on God. Have you found yourself in a similar position? where you are earnest about the Word of God, God reveals to you that He wants you to change, you make commitment to change, and then you expect that the rest of the story is going to be smooth sailing all the way to glory. But that's not the way that this story ends, and that's not the way that our story ends after we commit ourselves to God, is it? This story actually ends with failure to do what they had committed, followed by ongoing reform. So it's not just failure, but it's failure and ongoing reform. We need to recognize both of those parts. And can I suggest to you that that's the nature of the Christian life as well. That contrition and renewed commitment do not guarantee perfection, but they are a great starting point to a life of perseverance. And that's what we need to live. We need to recognize that even after we make a commitment to serve God, I'm going to purge those things from my lives. It's not from my life, it's, it's not necessarily going to be smooth sailing, but we need to persevere through it and just say, okay, I've committed to it. I, I failed, but I'm going to get back up again. And that's seemingly what the people of Israel do here in Nehemiah as well. 
So, I'll talk about chapters 11 and 12 when we, uh, after we read this section in chapter 13. So let's begin reading in chapter 13 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a a large room for him where formerly they put grain offerings and frankincense, the utensils and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time that I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. So the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padaiah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day that they sold food. Also, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah and sold them uh, on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. And I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath, and I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women 
from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak of the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. In chapters 11 through 13, we learn that we must watch out for the danger of spiritual drift. The danger of spiritual drift. There's really only two parts to this passage. There is chapters 11 and 12. There's a record of the temple workers who lived in Jerusalem. We'll talk about that. And then chapter 13, spiritual drift and Nehemiah's resolutions. Okay, so first, a record of the temple workers who lived in Jerusalem and the villages. In chapter 11, we have a record of the those who would live in Jerusalem. Now here, it's talking about the resettlement of Jerusalem and Judah. One of the problems, as I've mentioned before, Similar problem in chapter 7, verse 4, is that the city was left unpopulated. People didn't want to live in the city. They, they recognized that they could just stay in their homes out in the, the suburbs, so to speak. And so what they do here in chapter 11 is they decide who's going to live in the city. And apparently they choose some leaders who are going to do that. In addition to that, they take volunteers who are going to live in the city. And then, because they, they don't have enough people, then they cast lots for who will fill up the rest. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. So, apparently, these people, just the, the, the lay people, didn't want to live in the city, so they had to cast lots. This was the way to... Determines God, determine God's will in that day. So, chapter 11, verses 1-24 through 24, talks about the repopulation of Jerusalem. And then verses 25-36 show us the repopulation of Judah and Benjamin. Um, these two tribes and, and where people would stay there. And then in chapter 12, we have uh, a list of the high priests, priests and Levites from Zerubbabel to Nehemiah. So, who are all the high priests from the time of Zerubbabel, the governor, to Nehemiah, the governor? And it just basically gives us a list there, verses 1 through 26. And then, in verses 27 through 47, we have the dedication of the walls. So, we, we've already seen that the temple has been completed. The walls have been completed. Now they've repopulated the city. And now it's time to have a huge celebration. To say, hey, we've accomplished what God's wanted us to accomplish. 
Remember, Haggai had told them, listen, you're living in your paneled houses while the, the temple of God is left unfinished. Well, that's long past done. They're able now to worship God in the temple as He desires, as He demands. And so they dedicate the, the walls or the completion of the walls here at the last part of chapter 12. In verse 31 Nehemiah tells how he structures this celebration. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on the top of the wall and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on the top of the wall toward the refuse gate. And then, verse 38, the second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them. So you have these two choirs that start out apparently at the same spot and they head out around the city, one to the right and one to the left. There's actually walls that are wide enough to hold people um, and they would walk around the entire walls of the city and they would meet back at the temple. Notice verse 40. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So they, they go around the city. Apparently they're singing the whole time and some of the leaders are following them. And they meet back at the house of God, at the temple. And then they, they give this joyful worship and celebration in verse 43 of what God had accomplished through them. In addition to that, they also were willingly contributing to the service of God in verses 44 to 47. Saying, listen, we're going to provide for all the necessities that the temple needs. And this is consistent with their commitment, remember, at the end of chapter 10. We will give the temple tax. We will take care of the needs. We're going to supply the wood. We're going to, to make sure that the priests and the Levites don't have to leave the city or the temple. They don't have to go back to their own fields but rather they can stay in the city and, and take care of the, the work of God. So, the repopulation of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, chapters 11 and 12. Now, in chapter 13, the main focus of our, our discussion, our, our study this morning, is the reality of spiritual drift and Nehemiah's resolution the reality of spiritual drift and Nehemiah's resolutions for this drift. Notice first that they dis the, the sin is discovered. Verse 1, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. So this is going to, to really be what determines how, how they know that they're doing wrong. They have to see it from the Word of God. That is, the reading of the Word of God is what leads to spiritual reformation. This is similar to what we've seen before in Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is that the Spirit of God always initiates the work of God in the lives of God's people. The Spirit of God always initiates the work of God in the lives of His people. If we want to see spiritual reformation, it begins with submitting ourselves to the Word of God. The discovery of sin results in four resolutions by Nehemiah on behalf of the people. Resolution number one, cleanse Cleansing the temple. Resolution number one, cleansing the temple. Israel, in verses 1-3, through three, is seen first as a hearer of God's Word. You see that in, in verse 1, on the day that they read aloud from the book of Moses. And what did they find? They found that, there was, that it was written that no Ammonite or Moabite was ever supposed to enter the assembly of God. And then verse 3, so when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So it's after the reading of Scriptures that they find that no Ammonite or Moabite was supposed to be a part of the Jewish assembly. Now I think, um, just to qualify here, Ruth 
We're going to actually study that book on Sunday nights starting in two weeks. And Ruth is a Moabitess woman. And she is not excluded from the Jewish assembly. Maybe it's because she married an Israelite, but I think it's more likely it's because she actually abandoned the pagan god. She's a believer. It's clear from the book of Ruth that she is a believer. And so I think the point here is that you're not supposed to allow into the assembly any Ammonite or Moabite who does not accept the way of God. And yet they were doing that. And we'll see an example of that here shortly. Israel is a hearer of God's Word. They hear God's Word speak. They see that their sin and then they respond by actually doing something. They're also a doer of God's Word. That's probably even more important. Verse 3, So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. When they see that they violated Scripture, they respond with obedience. They have... they. They recognize that they are not in line with what God has told them to do. And for them, they need to respond by doing the hard right thing. And the hard right thing for them is to cut ties with the people whom they've allowed to be part of their community. Hey, we're all buds here. We're all part of the same community. One of those foreigners in their community that they had allowed was an Ammonite who had been given special privileges within the Jewish community. We are reintroduced to him at the end of verse 4. said, Who is appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah. So Eliashib, the high priest, had, had some kind of a family relationship with Tobiah. We had met Tobiah and Samballot before. They are seen as clear enemies of God in the book of Nehemiah and the enemies of God's work. They have tried from the beginning with covert and overt Attacks to thwart the rebuilding of the temple, or the temple walls, that is. But there's a minor hiccup here now that Nehemiah has gone away for a time. Uh, Nehemiah, by the way, went back to Babylon. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And he spent several years there, and he comes back to discover these problems. And this is, this is now he's discovering them after they read this, the scriptures together. Excuse me. Part of the problem is that Tobiah is a son-in-law to Eliashib, the high priest. Eliashib has not made it clear to his own family that they should not be marrying these foreign women. Again, the purpose of not marrying foreign women, uh, just to be clear, is is that they follow foreign gods. Not that it's illegal to marry foreign women or or opposed to God. It's 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 uh, opposed to God when when we marry someone who is opposed to God. Apparently, Eliashib not only had consented to the marriage, but also allowed Tobiah to live in the temple. And this is the real disgrace. Look at the end of verse 5. What used to be a place, a large room, where all these things were held. Um, Then verse 6, sorry, but during all this time I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. And after some time, I, however, I asked to leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah. How? By preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. So in the temple courtyard there, he pitches all the things, or probably just relocates all these things in verse 5 that were supposed to be for the use of the temple. This Grain offerings and frankincense, utensils, sides of grain, wine and oil, and so on, verse 5. 
And he says, here you go. You can set yourself up here, Tobiah. After all, you're my son-in-law. So in its place, he puts his household goods. And these household goods, uh, notice verse 8 just to see what he puts in its place. It was very displeasing to me, Nehemiah says, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. That phrase household good is used, the, the Hebrew word for that is used in Genesis 31-37 to describe items for a home. This could also include Tobiah's idols. It wouldn't be surprising if Tobiah was bringing his false gods in there as well since personal people had personal idols, idols back then that they would keep in their home. The room was supposed to be used to have the temple items in them, and yet Eliashib had profaned the temple, didn't he? He profaned it by treating what was sacred as common. That's what profanity is. He allowed a non-Jew not just to enter the temple, but to live there. Now, the timing of this is as Nehemiah was away. Nehemiah had gone back to Babylon in 433 B.C. and he returned back to Jerusalem in 420 B.C. So there's a 13-year period apparently where the people of God had once made a commitment not to turn away from God, to obey all these specific commands. And now, within this short period of time, they have spiritually drifted away because of a lack of strong leadership. It was during the time of Nehemiah's absence that Malachi wrote his prophecy regarding the merely external conformity of God. You know, you are robbing God. You are not showing love to God. I'm sick of your, your, uh, your lame animals that you're bringing as sacrifices. Things had changed when Nehemiah left. So that's the first resolution, the cleansing of the temple. Second resolution, resolution number two, recovery of the neglected offerings, verses 10 to 14. Recovery of the neglected offerings. The problem is found in verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So it was causing the, the, the Levites and the priests to have to go back to their own fields and work their own fields for themselves because they couldn't have enough money to support themselves by working at the temple full time. This is completely opposed to what they had promised. Turn back to chapter 10. Let me just show you that this is something that they had already put in writing and had considered this could be a potential problem. So we want to make sure we head it off by recognizing the potential problem and committing not to, to, to fall into that trap. Notice chapter 10, verse 32. We also placed ourselves under obligation in this covenant agreement to God and to each other to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. So, in chapter 13, we're seeing they're not doing that anymore. The contributions are gone. Verse 34 of chapter 10, Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among the priests. So the priests don't have to go out and chop wood or try to figure out a way to get it into the city. The people would figure that out. Verse 35, And that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually. Verse 37, We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine, the oil... And then look at the end of verse 39, the last sentence. 
and verse 39. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. That's how they complete their commitment to God. So, in summary, we're not going to we're not going to neglect the house of God. And yet, here in chapter 13, we find them portions of the Levites had not been given them. The Levites weren't able to provide for themselves or weren't, weren't able to have enough provision, so they had to go provide for themselves. So Nehemiah comes up with a solution. In verse 11, he reprimands the officials. He, say, he says, why is the house of God forsaken? This is what consistent with what Malachi had been preaching while Nehemiah was away. They had come to see contributions to the temple as a way to bribe God into getting what they wanted. And so when that didn't seem to work, they weren't getting what they wanted, and they quickly reverted to giving as little as possible to the work of God. Do you remember what Malachi called that in Malachi 3.8? He said, you are actually, in not giving to the work of the temple, you are actually robbing God. And so Nehemiah reprimands the officials and he appoints people to collect the promised offerings. And he does make sure that, that there's a, a separation there of duty so that, that there's no uh, one person who can kind of steal or, or kind of uh, um, take some money for themselves. And then Nehemiah prays to God in verse 14. He says, Remember me for this, O my God. This is not a prayer of boasting. This is a prayer of dependence. Nehemiah recognized, if I'm going to do Your will, God, if I'm going to make these hard right choices with Your people, then I need Your help. And that's what these prayers are about. Resolution, resolution number one, cleansing of the temple. Resolution number two, recovery of the neglected offerings. Resolution number three, restoration of Sabbath observance. Verses 15-22. to 22. Restoration of Sabbath observance. The problem is found in verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys. And the point is, there's all sorts of commerce and work that's going on on the Sabbath day which should not be happening. It was one thing for foreigners to buy and sell on the Sabbath. But it's a completely different thing to find customers among the Jews because the Jews had clear Sabbath laws. And so the solution by Nehemiah is found at the end of verse 15. So I admonished, I warned them on the day that they sold food. When Israel dropped their guard about the Sabbath law, the men of Tyre in verse 16 uses as an opportunity to gain new customers. Hey, Nehemiah's not here. He doesn't seem to be pushing the Sabbath day thing. Maybe we can kind of get our foot into the door, so to speak, of the Jewish culture and, and we can get some, some commerce going on the Sabbath day, Saturday. Nehemiah reminds them that profaning the Sabbath is what got them exiled in the first place. Look at verse 18. Did not your fathers do the same? Profane the Sabbath. So that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble. Do you know why we were exiled in the first place? One of the reasons is that your fathers profaned the Sabbath. They stopped being concerned about God's law in that way. And he says here at the end of verse 18, yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath, treating what should be sacred, what should be a sacred day, as common. Just like any other day. I'm just going to do buy and sell and get gain. And then Nehemiah again prays for himself in verse 22. Uh, there's some more action going on there with, with some of the 
some of the outsiders, they're waiting at the gate till the Sabbath ends and so they can come in right away and, and do commerce. But he says, no, just go away. And then verse 22 at the end of the verse, Remember me for this, O my God, and have compassion on me according to uh, the greatness of your loving kindness. Again, he depends upon God in prayer. Resolution number four, settling the mixed marriages. It's amazing about all of these problems that are coming up is these are recurring problems. Ones that they even established in their commitment, their agreement to God, that they would not do, and yet these are the very things they're doing. Here the problem is religious syncretism. They're mixing the true worship of God with the false worship of idols. Verses 23 and 24. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And as for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them spoke in the language of Judah, or none of them spoke Hebrew. I I go away for 13 years. I come back. I see all these, these young kids elementary age kids, and they're, they're all speaking a different language. They're not speaking Hebrew. What's going on here? Find out, oh, their mom is from Moab or from Ammon or Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the five Philistine cities. No wonder. You've, you've mixed marriages in a, in a wrong way and that you're allowing your children to be raised up in in one pseudo serving the true God and then the other clearly serving a false God. You're trying to mix those things. You can't do it. And so the solution in verses 25 to 28, he shows them the seriousness of their sin in verse 25, taking out some some punishment that we wouldn't do in our culture, but in, apparently during that time that was completely normal to pull out hair and Make a big scene like that. Verse 26, he reminds them of their historical failure. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? And he uses this whole time to say, listen, that was part of Solomon's problem. He married all these foreign women that that did not love God, had no concern to God. And what ended up happening in the end for Solomon? He ended up making an idol to Molech at the end of his life. Uh, Talk about Talk about turning your back on God. Now, we know from Hebrews 11 that Solomon was a believer, but what a shame. That's the point that Nehemiah is bringing up, that, that Solomon was shameful in his actions because he had bought into this idea that it was okay to marry a person who was opposed to God. Verse 28, he's appalled at the extent of the sin that even one of the grandsons of the high priest was married to the daughter of Sam Ballot. Again, there's this mixed um, marriage going on. And then in verse 29, he prays to God again and says, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled. This, he's not saying remember them so that they are converted. He's saying remember these wicked people and bring about vengeance on them. In other words, bring judgment on them for their sin. And then finally in verses 30 and 31, we have a summary of Nehemiah's resolutions. Maybe just these four resolutions that we've looked at or it could be just the entire time that Nehemiah was alive. This is a summary of the work that he had did, that, that he had done. That while rebuilding the walls certainly was a major accomplishment, the biggest work that Nehemiah did and the most important work that he did was the spiritual reformation that he led. The restoration of worship in the temple. Look at verse 30. Thus, 
I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood and appointed times and for the first fruits. So I organized all this so that restoration of worship in the temple and done with proper attitudes was in place. Nehemiah was most concerned about spiritual reformation. And then he concludes with a prayer again. Remember me, O my God, for good. His whole motive throughout this whole reform is to please God. So, the danger of spiritual drift is very real. So, let me encourage you to beware or to challenge you to beware of spiritual drift. Yes, contrition and renewed commitment are a great starting point for spiritual progress. But watch out for spiritual drift because any one of us can drift away from God. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 That commitment that you have to serve God and even a renewed commitment can actually quickly be replaced by spiritual retreat if you don't have a proper relationship with God. The danger of spiritual drift is very real. It often takes place imperceptibly. That is, over a period of time and almost without noticing it. That's why it's called drift. You know, someone's out in the ocean, you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm close to land, I'm okay. Then over time, next thing you know, you're hundreds and hundreds of miles away from land. You know, How did I get here? I didn't even feel like I was moving. That's the nature of spiritual drift as well. And I would suggest to you that spiritual drift is guaranteed without spiritual direction. That we need godly leaders to help us point out the sins in our lives. We need, we need the Word of God to show us where we need to go. Spiritual drift can actually happen pretty fast, even within the course of one generation for Nehemiah and the people. It was only a matter of a decade or, or more. This took place. It goes away for a while comes back to find all these commitments that they were confident they were going to follow through on were not happening. In fact, they were doing the opposite. So let me give you, in closing, six ways that we can avoid or recover from spiritual drift. Number one, avoid spiritual drift by committing yourself to spiritual change. I just mentioned earlier, if we commit to spiritual change, it can quickly turn into spiritual retreat. We can drift away from God. But what I'm suggesting to you now is start out with that commitment. That was not wrong for them to do what they did in chapter 10. That was a good thing. Commit to God. Yes. Tell Him where you're failing Him and tell Him where you see potential dangers up ahead and commit to stay away from that. Commit that you will not turn away from God. Nehemiah was committed to spiritual change. The people were at one time. That's a great starting point. And I think we are much worse off if we don't commit to change. Commit to uh, spiritual change. We're We're in much greater danger towards spiritual drift if we don't make a commitment in the first place. Number two, avoid spiritual drift by committing 
to advancing this church towards spiritual change. Sometimes we can think of the Christian life as a solo, um, a solo project. We, we need to get ourselves to heaven. And certainly we have responsibility for ourselves. But the Scriptures teach that sanctification is a community project, isn't it? Hebrew, read through the book of Hebrews and see how we need each other. If we don't encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, then we will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 3, verse 13. And we need to, um, we need to make sure that we are encouraging one another to, to, um, to come into fellowship with one another. And we need to think about how we can provoke them to love and good works. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> so it's one thing to commit yourself to spiritual change, but I think we as a congregation need to commit to spiritual change as a whole. We can avoid spiritual drift personally and corporately in that way. Number three, avoid spiritual drift by desiring and choosing godly leaders. Avoid spiritual drift by desiring and choosing godly leaders. There is nothing more that our church need that our churches need than godly leaders. We need men who are wholeheartedly devoted to Christ. Not just in word only. They can get up and, and talk the talk. We need people, we need men who are committed to Christ fully in their actions as well. And so I say to you, if I as your pastor ever stray away from wholeheartedly following Christ, you need to remove me from this church. And you need to get yourself in here a man who will lead you toward God because a faithless pastor will not lead you to the faithful God. A faithless pastor will not lead you to the faithful God. He will lead you to the doorstep of hell and he will make you feel good on your way there. Our churches need godly leaders who are committed not only to teaching and knowing the Word of God, but to living it. Avoid spiritual drift by desiring and choosing godly leaders. Number four, avoid spiritual drift by focusing on the goal. What is our goal? What is our goal as Christians? What is our goal as a church? I think our goal is to, we could state it in a lot of different ways, but, but one way we could state it is that we want to stand before God one day and have Him look at our lives and see clear evidence that we were counted worthy of our calling. Not that we earned our salvation, but that God worked in us both the will and the do of His good pleasure and that that evidence was seen in real fruit. We, we want to stand before God as a fruit tree, a good fruit tree. And if that's our goal, then we need to pursue Christ's likeness. We need to pursue what God is pursuing in us, right? He's conforming us to the image of His Son, Romans 8.29. So that means we need to be conformed to the image of His Son. Work in that direction. Focus on that goal. Recognizing what, what God is working in us to do. Number five. Avoid spiritual drift by pursuing the goal God's way. So, number four. Avoid spiritual drift by pursuing the goal. And then, avoid spiritual drift by pursuing the goal God's way. And that means that if we're going to do it God's way, we need to be intolerant of evil. Intolerant of evil. Because once a church begins to tolerate evil, it's only a matter of time before spiritual rigor mortis starts to set in. 
The only way to avoid sure spiritual death is to respond to the voice of the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2? He said, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the immoral woman Jezebel. She is leading many of you astray. The point for us is that as long as we hear God speaking to us about our sin, it's not too late to turn from it. But if you keep on resisting God and His Word, if you keep listening but not obeying, there will come a time when there will be a famine. Not a famine of bread or thirst for water. It will be a famine, as Amos says, of hearing God speak. If you take joy in rejecting God's Word and ignoring God and resisting God, and if you have the desire to live the rest of your life without hearing from God, you better be careful that you don't get what you want. Doing it God's way means that we need to be intolerant of evil at the first sign of evil because once we start allowing those types of things, down the road we'll be saying, well, what I was... What I was uh, resisting before is not even a big deal. Now you, you have much bigger hurdles. Doing it God's way means being intolerant of evil. It also means maintaining purity in the church. In other words, there's no spiritual advancement when you cut corners in order to reach spiritual maturity. We can quickly sacrifice the purity of our church in order to preserve, pursue our own spiritual progress, but the purity of our church must be maintained at any cost. Doing it God's way means maintaining purity in the church. And doing it God's way means depending on God through prayer. This is Nehemiah, right? This is how Don Hall Jr. says he said about Nehemiah. Nehemiah needed God to be involved at every moment of crisis, and he sought God's wisdom in every solution. And that's a great example for us. We need God in that way. Every moment of crisis, and we need to seek Him for wisdom for every solution. Number six. Recover from spiritual drift through perseverance. So this is where Israel, I think, is. They were trying to avoid it by setting up this commitment, being committed to God, having this relationship with God, but then they started to drift. So how do we recover from that? Well, we recover through perseverance. When you have found that you've drifted spiritually, recover through Spirit-empowered perseverance. That is, get back up again. Is God revealing your sin to you right now? Is He saying, hey, there's something going on that you're ignoring? Then I would suggest to you that He's also granting you the power to overcome that sin because if you're willing to confess that sin to God, then God is faithful not only to forgive you, but also to do what? To cleanse you from it. But you need to be willing to take that step toward God. We are not driftwood on the ocean of the spiritual life. We just kind of float along all the way till eternity. In fact, if you are, you see your life as a piece of driftwood, you're not going to drift toward holiness. No one drifts toward holiness. The example I've used before is like the elite forces of the military. Nobody kind of just, you know, I kind of fell into it. You know, it just kind of happened. I don't know how it happened. No, you work hard to get there. 
And that's the nature of holiness, friends. If you're going to change, you need to draw near to God by pursuing change. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be complicit with the work that the Spirit's already doing in you. No one drifts toward holiness. Holiness comes with great effort according to the power that God supplies. And friends, we have that power at our disposal to avoid and to recover from spiritual drift. We need to depend on God to get there. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reminder of this this reality that we, even now who have hearts full of joy and love for You and the desire to serve You all the way to the end, are still capable of drifting away from You. We know that's the case because it's happened before in our own Christian lives. We've turned from You in a way that we didn't want to. We, the way that we sing about it in song is that we are prone to wander prone to leave the God that we love. So Lord, we need You. We need You to initiate change by speaking Your Word to us. We need You to to use this body of believers to keep us accountable and to pray for us. And Lord, I pray for my own soul that You would protect me from spiritual drift. That the, the things of this world would not look shiny and important but fleeting and passing away as I learn more about my Savior. I pray the same for these believers here today as well. Lord, fix our eyes on You. Fix our eyes on the final prize that You have promised for us. Help us to recognize that we are pilgrims here and and we are also soldiers in Your battle for truth. And so we pray that You would Establish that truth deep within us. Not just to know it, but to live it. Lord, we want to be doers of Your Word. So help us to be complicit with Your Spirit in that way. In Jesus' name, Amen.